All comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika. And me, Maddie. Welcome back, everyone, to episode... Are we on episode nine now? Episode nine. Nine, how exciting is that? I'm actually really sad about the prospect of episode 10 coming up and us having a little break. But what a milestone, Maddie. Well done, us. We have loads lined up for you as per usual. I'm going to be doing a case about a drug testing drama that's been going on, which has implications for family proceedings. What have you got, Maddie? I am doing a case that I consider a bit of an ode to family law, which contains some really interesting things about child abuse, but warning, it does contain discussion of the sexual abuse of children. So if that's something that you're not particularly interested in, then just make sure to skip over my bit for this episode. So let's hand over to you to kick us off. Yeah, so the case I'm dealing with this week is called Greater Manchester Police and Zuniga and Others, and it was handed down by the president of the family division. Non-family lawyers may not know this, but there is currently some drama going on to do with data manipulation in labs which provide forensic information, which is then used in proceedings, including in family court proceedings. The family courts, as you know, Maddie, routinely direct hair strand, blood testing, and so on. And the results are crucial to the progression of a case and to the position of parents or carers who are seeking to care for children. The concern is that data has been manipulated, which would have enormous implications for the family courts, of course, because of how routinely we use that data and rely upon that data. So if, for example, a parent is incorrectly tested as positive for drugs, they could have children removed from their care. Or on the other hand, if they're mistakenly tested as negative, children could be returned to their care and placed at risk. So there have been rumblings about this since way back in 2017 in the press, which you may have read about, Maddie. But this judgment's pretty short. It's only about 20 paragraphs, and it concerned an application by Greater Manchester Police for orders about material that it had in its possession to do with these allegations of data manipulation. And it intended to use that material in the criminal investigation into the seven named respondents to this application, who are the suspects. For the avoidance of doubt, the named respondents are only suspects. As far as I know, they haven't been convicted of anything to do with these matters yet. But the judgment broadly outlines what allegations they're facing and what is said to have been going on. So the police investigation by Greater Manchester Police began in 2017 and it uncovered, this is jaw dropping, 27,000 reports which may have been affected by the alleged data manipulation. And two companies in particular were primarily said to be involved. Trimega Labs, who family lawyers may be familiar with, I think they're used quite regularly up north, and Randox Testing. Why would anyone manipulate the data, you might ask? Well, the allegation is that the respondents manipulated data to get rapid accreditation from their regulator. So they were effectively trying to 
skip what they were supposed to be doing, cut corners so that they could provide forensic services to the police, and that would give them a greater market share over their competitors. The judgment details how the police came to know about the alleged activity. I'm not going to go through it all, but it's super interesting. Give it a proper read. It's quite an exciting read. It's like something out of an ITV drama. And the police investigation revealed an apparent cover-up of data anomalies relating in particular to two family court cases, including one case where drugs testing was challenged by a woman who had had children removed from her care because of drugs use. So this is just the stuff of nightmares for family lawyers and family courts. So Greater Manchester Police was applying to the court to retain documents, samples and digital materials which were produced for use in connection with cases heard and determined in the family courts and then to use and analyse those materials for tracing witnesses and securing evidence. So family proceedings, as we all know, are private and information produced in the family courts is usually confidential to protect the party's privacy. So permission needs to be granted for those documents to be used outside the proceedings. So usually if the police want something from the family courts, they will make an application to the family courts for disclosure. In this case, the police had already lawfully obtained the information that was the subject of the application. However, under Section 22 of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, the police can only hold the biometric material for as long as is necessary in the circumstances. That is not for any other purpose other than criminal law enforcement. Practically speaking, what that means is that once a charging decision is made and the case goes from the police over to the Crown Prosecution Service, the police can't keep that data. So they were asking the court for permission to hold that material without those limitations, including material that they haven't actually used. Because the orders being sought concerned some information which was used in the family courts, that engaged relevant provisions in the family procedure rules around the communication of information beyond parties to those proceedings. And so the application had to be made to the family court around relaxing the restrictions around disclosure. I'd also say that Greater Manchester Police was asking for an order in respect of this whole class of information, rather than making applications on a case by case basis in respect of particular individuals, because of course that would have been completely time consuming. What the court says, and I'll read it out directly, it's not hard to imagine the circumstances where this data would be sought by an individual concerned, given the size of the affected data, and the nature of the proceedings in which it was involved. There are likely to be criminal, family, coronial and employment cases previously decided, which parties may wish to revisit on the basis of faulty data. The importance of this is hard to overstate. It concerns miscarriages of justice, which may have occurred in reliance on what are now known to be erroneous drugs testing results. And the court goes on to say, there is no alternative custodian of the material, given that TL Trimegalabs was liquidated, and so the material would otherwise be destroyed. Given the number of people affected who may require these materials at some point, it's important that it's retained. The alternative would allow individuals concerned to access the material produced for court, but not the background material which demonstrates the data manipulation. In my judgment, there is no viable alternative to allowing the data to be held by Greater Manchester Police, which would also allow the individuals concerned access to the material needed to demonstrate a miscarriage of justice. 
So because the pool of people who could be affected by this is so enormous, at some point in time, they may seek to challenge drug testing results, which have implications for them. But who is going to hold those drug testing results, if not the police? Because certainly one of these labs has now been liquidated. I'm not totally sure about the status of the other. So the balancing of interests here is between the protection of these individuals' Article 8 rights, the individuals whose testing results are the subject of this investigation, given that holding biometric data, very sensitive information, obviously has real implications for people's privacy, and balancing that against the interest in holding onto that data in the event it needs to be revisited to challenge incorrect results, which may have resulted in miscarriages of justice. So the judge granted the application which was being sought by the police and it was unopposed by the respondents anyway, but the issue is to be reviewed every year by him, by the president of the family division or any successor I suppose, to ensure that the interference is proportionate with the people who are affected their Article 8 rights. He also directed that the identity of any individuals can only be revealed in criminal trials if they've consented to their identities being revealed. So those are the checks and balances that the court has put in place to offset the potential Article 8 intrusion of allowing the police to hold on to this data until kingdom come. Any thoughts, Maddie? Yeah, I mean, it's disappointing, isn't it, that the only people that they can think of to perform that task is the police. I can see why there's a tension there in terms of if you're an individual whose biometric data is being held by the state. The reason that I'm surprised that that was why they were holding on to it is that there's no alter- there's no sort of, I don't know, third party lab or someone who could hold this data for these people rather than it being the police. Because you can see the obvious concerns or tensions from the public with that being the resolution is that oh don't worry the police will just hang on to your to your data for as long as necessary but we're doing it because it's in your interest I think that does automatically create attention and people might be more comfortable with their data being continuously held I mean I certainly would be if it wasn't an arm of the state and particularly Greater Manchester Police who haven't necessarily covered themselves in glory in this case anyway I think it's yeah it's, it's a difficult tension isn't it and I think also more broadly the concern that we have about hair strand testing, about the reliability of this data, I think is was quite significant. There was a case in 2017, I don't know if you read it, called ReH, which was about challenging hair strand testing. And actually someone from my chambers was involved in it. And it was about a mother who swore blind that she hadn't taken as much cocaine as the hair strand test indicated that she had. And so her lawyers challenged the reliability of those results and, and actually spoke to three different labs. I think it was labs that we used to seeing Lextox, DNA Legal, Cansford, those places were challenged. And it turned out that, you know, the different organisations use different thresholds for cutoffs. Their idea of high might be someone else's idea of medium. And the I think it was Mr Justice Jackson was quite keen to say there's a responsibility on lawyers as well as labs to make sure that these results are legitimate. If your client says I did not use drugs and I am willing to challenge this evidence and say I did not, then that's your responsibility to make sure that, that science and that data is being used in a proper way. So I think it, it adds to what I'm going to come on to talk about in a minute in my case, but about the responsibility of lawyers to challenge evidence that they might not necessarily understand, but you have to learn about it and do right by your client because things like this can happen. And scientific data is certainly no more reliable than anything else because it's human and it involves human analysis. And I think it's it's a really difficult area because hair strand tests are used routinely in private proceedings, public proceedings, all over the, the shop in terms of family law. And we're very used to getting them and showing what they show and then moving on. And often because the person will turn around and say, OK, yes, I did use that much cocaine or that much cannabis. So you don't really need to challenge the evidence. But 
there may be an over-reliance on the data and cases like this, I think, emphasize the importance of challenging that data and being aware that science is not, is not infallible and there will undoubtedly be, be areas where it needs to be considered more fully. So I think it's a, it's a very helpful reminder of that. Yeah, certainly if I was representing any parent now moving forward who raises concerns about their drug testing, this will be a case that I'll be returning to. There are a few cases that have come out of the family courts about challenging hair strand testing results and having to look at the forensic data. But certainly if you were using any of the two labs that were referred to in this judgment, and there is some concern about the veracity of the results that were then relied upon in your proceedings. If I was representing that person, that's something that I would be discussing with them about whether or not those results need to be revisited. The family courts are enormously, enormously reliant upon expert evidence. And when it's things like psychological assessments or independent social worker assessments, routinely lawyers are used to challenging those. That's unsurprising because usually you'll get one of those reports and usually the parent will say, no, I don't agree with those conclusions and I want it to be challenged and there'll be an opportunity to robustly challenge them in cross-examination. But as you say, with drug testing results, because it's in quotation marks science, we just think, okay, well, there's nothing really here to challenge. This is what it is. This is not something that's subjective data. And it's a real warning to lawyers to not become complacent and to really interrogate everything that's in the court bundle and not to overly rely on agencies that we use day in, day out, because we trust them. Because the, if anything, this case is just a reminder that we can't trust all agencies. We have to be alert at all times. It's disappointing. Yeah, and I think it is a nightmare scenario. A lot of the kind of headlines about care work obviously say, you know, I falsely tested positive for drugs and my child was taken away from me. That's sort of a dramatic interpretation of it. But I think if if you had a child one day and the next day you did a drug test and tested positive for high levels of cocaine that you'd never taken, that would set your life off onto a trajectory that you had very little control of. It's a little bit Kafkaesque to some extent because it, challenging the drug test takes time. And in the meantime, your relationship with your child is being affected. So I think there is a lot of really serious consequences to over-reliance on science um, and those consequences are obviously justified in terms of what if the risk was true but it doesn't stop it being a very significant high level of intervention for cases where the drug testing has turned out to be either manipulated or just incorrect and so that does need to be borne in mind I think by practitioners and judiciary alike in terms of a drugs test singular is not always the most reliable piece of evidence any more so than a single psychological evaluation or a single parenting assessment is, is more valuable than anything else. You have to look at the broad canvas of all the evidence. And this is just one part of that. What have you got for me, Maddie? So I'm doing a case called Re-H brackets Children Findings of Fact 2021. It came out in March 2021. And it's about appealing findings of fact. So we've talked about findings of fact on the show before. We did a, a long episode on Re-HM, which was fact findings in private children proceedings about domestic violence and the importance of those and when the court finds them and when they don't and appealing those kind of findings. This is a case that involves the judge having found at first instance, the circuit judge, that the child had been sexually abused by her father and the father seeking to overturn those findings. And I'm gonna come on to the law around overturning findings of fact in a minute, because I think it's really important for people to know about and also to understand the system of family courts better, which I think I kind of hope is what we're trying to do on the show is kind of demystify family law a little bit. But this is an important area for me because I recently watched a lecture by Tina Cook QC, who's fantastic and, and really brilliant. I've seen her in court as well and she's amazing, but 
she did a lecture about how to prove sexual abuse when there's no medical or physical evidence, which very often there won't be. I think general public assume that if a child has been sexually abused, you can tell physically from looking at the child or inspecting the child medically that they have been abused. That is very often not the case. And what the court emphasizes in all sexual abuse cases is a lack of medical finding neither supports nor refutes a suggestion of sexual abuse. So if you have a child who medically presents as quote unquote fine, that doesn't necessarily prove or disprove that they've been sexually abused. So how do you go about proving sexual abuse? In this case, and this is very common, the child had made a number of allegations against her father. Quick disclaimer there as well, some professionals still refer to allegations made by the children as disclosures, that's not what they should be called, they should be called allegations, they haven't been called disclosures since the 90s, because the word disclosure assumes truth and we can't assume truth until we've looked at the evidence. So the child made a number of allegations against her father in a number of ABE interviews over the course of 2020. An ABE interview is called an Achieving Best Evidence interview and it involves police or social workers or sometimes both sitting with the child and asking questions in a way that's not leading, asking questions in a way that the child can understand the difference between a lie and a truth and eliciting allegations from the child about what happened to them. So this child went through a number of ABE interviews and made a number of significant allegations of sexual abuse against her father. Those allegations were supported to an extent by her younger sister, who also had an ABE interview and who also gave similar, but what the judge found to be independent, allegations of also sexual abuse by the father. So you've got two children making similar allegations about their father and no physical or medical evidence at all about sexual abuse. And so the case comes before the judge in the first instance. What the judge finds is that essentially on four occasions, the child who's referred to as D had been sexually abused by her father. And the father almost immediately appealed as you probably would, I'd imagine, if you have a, a client who's been found to have sexually abused a child, appealed and said, you know, the strength of the evidence is not strong enough, you can't possibly make findings against a father in these circumstances. All the child has done is said what's happened to her. That could have been polluted by anything. It could have been polluted by her lying. It could have been polluted by other children at school. It could have been polluted by the younger sibling, et cetera, et cetera. So it comes before the court for an appeal. And the case sets out essentially the right way to find sexual abuse findings. So it's really, really helpful, I think, for judges, obviously, but also for practitioners in terms of how you go about proving sexual abuse in a case where the evidential picture is very broken up, very divided. And the court goes through each element of the judge's original judgment and says, well, we think that the judge did consider properly this aspect, did consider properly that aspect. And indicate that the allegations made by the children, although they are the only, you know, quote unquote only evidence against the father, does not mean that they are not true and does not mean that the court is not entitled to make findings on those allegations. And obviously in a criminal sense, and I think that's the sense that most people sort of move through the world in terms of whether or not things are true, this wouldn't necessarily be the case because the only evidence that you have is the word of a child. The child does not give evidence in court, obviously, I think she's about 12 when this case takes place. She only gives interviews to the police and social workers and those interviews are then shown to the judge, played to the judge. So that evidence is not cross-examined directly, it's not challenged directly by anyone in the case. 
but obviously any information that she said to other people and she made a number of allegations to social workers to teachers to police those individuals those adults can come to court and be challenged about what the child said so there is a sort of indirect method of challenge but the child herself who's making the allegations has not been directly challenged and that puts anyone in a very difficult position because the welfare of the child dictates that she probably shouldn't come to court and give evidence. Sometimes children do, but in this case, it wasn't appropriate for her to do that. And this father is essentially found to have committed these things, done these things on the balance of probabilities as opposed to beyond reasonable doubt. And the court find that the judge was fully entitled to make those findings, essentially, that despite the fact that some areas of her evidence were less reliable than others and some areas of her evidence were inconsistent. It was open to the judge to find that this child was essentially telling the truth or that she found that the father had done these things to the child. And I think it's a really interesting area because I think trying to explain how you prove sexual abuse to non-lawyers or people who don't do necessarily civil child protection law is quite complex. And a lot of the evidence in this case was school presentation, behavior, deterioration of attitude, sexualization, all the kind of things that you would look for that indicate psychologically that a child has gone through something sexual. They're not necessarily evidence that they have been sexually abused, but it's an indicator that something is psychologically not quite right with this child. And the court looks at all of that, looks at what the judge found in the first instance and says, actually, we, we're not going to touch these findings because they seem to be well made and they seem to be completely supported by the rest of the evidence in the case. And I thought that was just a very helpful and timeless judgment in terms of if you are trying to prove, even if you're trying to prove domestic violence or you're trying to prove the word of a child about something, you know, dad shouts at me or dad hits me or whatever, it's a very helpful judgment to look at how you do that and how you can really look at the reliability of children and children's evidence without it being challenged, but also how difficult that process can be and all the different areas that you need to touch on. So you need to look at school, you need to look at GP, you need to look at carers, you need to look at relatives and all that sort of thing. So yes, I think it's a very helpful judgment. I think it's a very interesting judgment in terms of all the different areas of evidence that the court looks at. And they essentially go back over all of the information before the court initially and say, this is why we think these findings stand. They also go through the law about how difficult it can be. And this is obviously a warning to any lawyers to overturn findings of fact. And we know this as practitioners that appealing findings of fact is very difficult. And the reason for that is because the first instance judge is the only judge who will ever hear all of the evidence and assess the witnesses and look at everything together in the round. The appeal court doesn't do that. All the appeal court does is hear submissions from the parties about why they think that the decision was unfair. The appeal court don't have the luxury of the whole bundle of all the witnesses of all the evidence. It's not a rehearing. It's a hearing on a separate issue as to whether an aspect of the first hearing was, was wrong. And the, the court takes us through that approach. And they emphasize particularly at paragraph 25 of the judgment, re-B, obviously we all know 2013 Supreme Court case, Lord Newberger explains in Reby the reasons why overturning findings of fact is difficult, and it says this. This is traditionally and rightly explained by reference to good sense, namely that the trial judge has the benefit of assessing the witnesses and actually hearing and considering their evidence as it emerges. Consequently, where a trial judge has reached a conclusion on the primary facts, it is only in a rare case such as where the conclusion was one, which there was no evidence to support, two, which was based on a misunderstanding of the evidence, or three, which no reasonable judge could have reached, that an appellate tribunal will interfere with it. 
This can also be justified on grounds of policy. Parties should put forward their best case on the facts at trial and not regard the potential to appeal as a second chance. Cost, appeals on fact can be expensive. Delay, appeals on fact often take a long time to get on. And practicality, in many cases, it's very hard to ascertain the facts with confidence. So a second different opinion is no more likely to be right than the first. And so that sets out the test of appealing findings of fact. And then they also look at the case of Henderson and Foxworth from 2014, also Supreme Court, where Lord Reed emphasizes that in the absence of some other identifiable error, such as without attempting an exhaustive account, a material error of law, the making of a critical finding of fact, which has no basis in evidence, or a demonstrable misunderstanding of relevant evidence, or a demonstrable failure to consider relevant evidence, an appellate court will interfere with the findings of fact made by the trial judge only if it is satisfied that this decision cannot reasonably be explained or justified. So it's a very high test. And in cases like family courts, where you have a lot of cases that involve individual fact findings, individual findings of fact that then set the tone for the rest of the proceedings, appealing those decisions is hard. And I think actually for good reason, having the complexity of sexual abuse findings when the children are not giving evidence and when there's no medical or physical evidence, you have to look at the whole canvas. You have to look at the children's presentation over a number of years. You have to look at the way they present at school, their behavior, all this kind of thing in order to draw inferences and look at the evidence as it stands. The appeal court is never gonna have that opportunity. And as Lord Newberger points out in Rebeat, a second opinion is no more likely to be right than the first. So constantly having different opinions about something that has been found is, is, is of no use to anyone and certainly no use to the children. So a very helpful one, and I think very indicative of why family law is so interesting, because you have to become kind of like we were talking about with the hair strand test case. When you do civil law and child protection law, you have to become an expert on very small areas very quickly if you're going to adequately represent clients. So if you're, if you're doing a sex abuse case, you have to become an expert on child presentation, developmental psychology, and looking at how children respond and react and behave. If you're doing a case about drug testing, you have to become an expert on drug analysis and look at different um, aspects of how you can analyze hair strand tests. If you're doing a case about, I don't know, a shaken baby, you have to become an expert on pediatric radiology and subdural hematomas and retinal hemorrhages. That is why family law is so interesting and important because you, you get the opportunity as a practitioner to do all kinds of different things. And I think that this case is a, is a particularly good example and quite interesting reading actually for anyone who's particularly interested in sex abuse of how you go about doing that in a case that seems impossible at first glance to make any findings on when a child is just saying these terrible things happened to me. It is possible and it is also very solid, the evidence that actually the court concludes was right to have been found and these findings were, were right to have been made. So a very interesting one for me and I, I quite enjoyed reading it. So I'd recommend yeah, I mean, from I've not read this case, but from what you've said, this judgment doesn't tell us anything new about the law and it doesn't seem surprising to us as practitioners. But I think it's a really useful judgment for non-family lawyers. And I imagine it's something they would find quite astonishing as a general member of the public, that a child can just say something, albeit to many people, albeit consistently, is not hauled into court to be cross-examined on what she is saying, and the judge can effectively take their word for it. I mean, I'm overly simplifying, but a general member of the public would just say, well, how could that possibly be fair? Where is the corroborative evidence? Actually, it's not surprising at all, and it's not surprising because, well, we're, we're talking about sexual abuse of a child here, but fact finds in general often probably mostly in my experience, deal with allegations that are he said, she said, 
mean, the majority of fact finds deal with allegations of domestic abuse, which are usually one person says this, the other person says that it's all happened in the privacy of the family home. So no one's really witnessed it. So whose word do we take for it? And how can we possibly make findings about it? So the family court is very much in the business of looking at fluffier, and I say fluffier with quotation marks, fluffier things like witness demeanor, how they come across in the witness box, consistency, credibility. It's very much an art rather than a science dealing with a fact-finding hearing. And I don't envy any judge who has the task of having to deal with making findings of fact. Those issues like witness demeanor, consistency and credibility, I think would make non-family lawyers uncomfortable because they are so subjective and they are so reliant upon one judge's interpretation of what they are seeing before them in court. But that doesn't make them any less valid or any less solid, as you said, the judge approached this case and the basis on which he reached his findings was solid. But it is it is something that I think would sit uncomfortably with me if I hadn't seen fact find after fact find and seen how judges deal with this and how robust they are in general from what I can see, despite the fact that they are dealing with far more nebulous concepts rather than hard fact. And I think it's also a reminder that the balance, uh, the standard of proof that we use in the family courts is much lower than what we use in the criminal courts. Like you said, the standard of beyond reasonable doubt is what general people move through life thinking is the standard that would be applicable to them if they found themselves in these circumstances. But that's not right. The standard of proof is lower for a reason. It's rightly lower for a reason because we're dealing with risk. We're dealing with children. We're not dealing with robbing someone of their liberty. We're not dealing with a criminal conviction. We're dealing with how to keep children safe. So the standard is necessarily lower. And by allowing that standard to be lower, then we are able to make findings on things that we wouldn't necessarily be able to prove in the criminal court. And I think that's that's right. That is the role of the family courts. If the standard wasn't lower, if the court wasn't able to deal with more nebulous concepts like witness demeanor and consistency and credibility, we would never make any findings. We would never, ever make any findings against anyone because there isn't necessarily going to be hard forensic evidence. And that can't be right. You know, it's, it's not just sexual abuse of a child. If you're making allegations of coercive and controlling behavior, how do you possibly prove that if you don't take into account things like that? So it might be hard for a non-family lawyer to stomach, but I think that as a family lawyer, it's it makes sense from what we have seen. Yeah, and just quickly on that, and then I will move on, but that's why I think you see the development of the understanding of developmental trauma, physical and psychological injury to children comes mostly from family cases because child injury, child neglect, sex abuse, physical abuse in babies, children is very rarely prosecuted criminally because there's no quote unquote evidence because it's only the mother or father there and what they both say they didn't do it and how could we possibly know but the development of shaken baby syndrome SIDS which is sudden infant death syndrome have all come out of fact findings in the family courts not criminal proceedings and I think that's because we are more willing as a division as you say because of the risk in child welfare that's at the center of of what we do to tackle those issues and to say we have to make findings we have to work out what happened that's the duty of the court if we've got nothing then we work it out using nothing if we've got a bit then we work it out using that bit and I think that's so important because it has led to very significant changes in the law around the treatment of, of how children die because people used to assume that if babies died someone must have done it And that's not what was found to be the case in lots of different family cases in the 80s and 90s and led to better understanding of SIDS. So it is an important thing to do both 
within our jurisdiction of fa the family courts, but also more broadly for the public. We are the only division sometimes who are able to address these things because we have to, because we have to keep the child safe. And the only way to do that is to make decisions about what happened to them. So I'm a very a big proponent of tackling findings of fact head on and making findings, even in the absence of what you would consider physical or um, forensic evidence. It is possible you can do it. And sometimes it goes wrong, but actually the majority of the time it doesn't. And when it does go wrong, it's often very fully addressed um, in inquiries and so on and changes to the way that we do things. So yeah, an ode to family law really from me this week as ever. What is your book, talk, podcast recommendation for us this week? Book recommendation from me this week. So it's Mohsen Zaidi's A Dutiful Boy. Have you heard of that? He's a criminal barrister, I want to say. No, I've not heard of that actually. Yeah, it's, it's great. I'm about halfway through it. I'm going on holiday immediately after we stop reading this. I'm going to take the book with me along with my very long TBR list. And it is beautiful so far. It's heartbreaking. And it's about him navigating being queer in a devout Muslim community and how he reconciles being gay with what he's been brought up to believe about gay people. And I was watching an interview with Mohsen Saidi yesterday and he was saying that it's actually a love letter to his parents. So even though from reading the blurb and from starting the book, you might think that it's a very, oh gosh, we're falling into the same old tropes about Muslim communities being unaccepting of the queer community. And this is gonna be the same old, same old. From what I can tell from what I've seen in interviews, it's far more nuanced than that. So I'm looking forward to seeing how the book ends. From what I've seen in interviews, Mohsen Saidi says it's all about love and it's all about hope so I'm I'm hopeful that it's going to have a promising ending so I'm looking forward to finishing that I'll finish it off and then I'll, I'll post it to you along with Careless from last last time yeah definitely I'm actually a huge as you can probably tell from everything we talk about on this show I'm a huge fan of queer literature there's not enough of it I'm a big Sarah Waters fan for anyone who's interested in further queer literature I love Sarah Waters and more recently there was a book released called the Book of Queer Prophets, which is a book of essays about queer love um, and LGBTQI love, which um, is really, really good and was curated by Baroness Ruth Hunt, who used to be the CEO of Stonewall. So if that's of interest to anyone, then do check it out. And definitely Dutiful Boy, it sounds like a really good addition to that canon. Have you ever been to Gaze the Word in Russell Square? No. It's fantastic. So it's a, it's a bookshop which is dedicated to LGBTQIA literature. And it's fantastic because I really did not know anything about queer literature before I was at university and before I started exploring it in earnest. And it's such an important canon to explore and people don't explore it. The things that we read are overwhelmingly heteronormative, cis. So I, I really do think if anyone is passing through London it's near Russell Square, Gaze the Word Bookshop. It's fantastic. And the owners of it are really, really experienced and know what they're talking about. So if you need recommendations, they're always willing to help you. It's also considered to just be a general safe space for the queer community. So look it up. Let's do a podcast trip there, get some new books. My recommendation this week is an episode of Desert Island Discs. Now, I love Desert Island Discs. It's actually my dream to be on Desert Island Discs. The only reason I want to be a successful lawyer is so I can eventually be on Desert Island Discs. But... A couple of weeks ago, they had Heather Hallett, otherwise known as Lady Justice Hallett, who is also now a crossbench peer. She's the Baroness of Rye, which is very cool. And it's her Desert Island Discs. It's about her growing up in the bar and as a young female barrister and then a judge and so on and so forth. And she also chaired the 7-7 bombings inquiry. And she's so funny. She's so down to earth. She's really, really interesting. Her music taste is great. 
and she talks a lot about early experiences of sexism at the bar shock when she was um she specialized in crime and I think also did some family and she talks about being told by judges that she is just going to go off and have children so there's no point applying for these roles um she is asked by a judge if she will allow him to be the father of her next child um she talks about being um attacked by a family of a essentially a, a paedophile that she was representing in a case she had to challenge the evidence of a child as weirdly we were just talking about sexual abuse sexual abuse case in criminal proceedings the child was being cross-examined by her and she was attacked by the family after the case so really really interesting and difficult times coming up through the bar in the 70s and 80s but she's got a really really good humor about it and it really is very connecting for people who don't necessarily have that much interest in the ins and outs of law it's she's very fun and she's very just has lived such a full and interesting life and career and her she has two sons and one of whom actually is now a family barrister so it's a big proponent of family law and she I think was the fifth woman to ever sit on the Court of Appeal after Hale Butters loss, Arden and Smith, obviously. So yeah, I'd really recommend it. It's a really interesting and fun listen. It's only about 30 minutes long. So um, check that out and have a listen to Heather Hallett. She's fab. Yeah, thanks so much for that. I've always wanted to be on Desert Island Discs as well. I often interview myself in a mirror and hope that one day I'll be enough of a female big name in law for someone to invite me onto any of those. Yeah, I have all my songs ready. I'm ready to go. Whenever they want to call me, I'm ready. Go on, hit me with your tweet of the week. My tweet of the week is from Paul Lewis at Paul Ian Lewis. And he writes, yet another final hearing adjourned for want of judicial availability. It's getting beyond a joke. The additional cost to practitioners and the delay to cases is almost unbearable. It's getting worse, not better at Her Majesty's Courts and Tribunal Service. I just completely feel his pain. This is something that's been happening more and more in COVID times that at the door of court you're told actually sorry we don't have a judge available it sounds so outrageous it sounds so ridiculous when you try and tell a client I'm so sorry the hearing that you've waited months and months and months to get to the hearing which is going to determine the outcome of your children's minorities can't go ahead because we couldn't find a judge I mean it just sounds it just sounds dystopic sometimes I know it's I completely think this is something worth mentioning because it is the reality for so many people at the family bar and the criminal bar and basically any area of the bar there are no judges there there are huge numbers of cases huge backlogs actually huge availability to do remote hearings now they've actually come so far particularly with the new amendments to CVP that allow for special measures and things and interpreters it's actually much easier to do remote hearings now than it was this time last year but you still need a judge and judges are human and therefore fallible. And if they need to self-isolate or they get ill or they are unavailable, or they can't go somewhere or do something or read the papers in time, then a case has to be stopped or not go on. And I think that's something that HMCTS just failed to consider when they consider the backlog is partly COVID's fault, but not really COVID's fault. It was there before. Um, and when they consider addressing that backlog, they forget that these these cases have to be presided over by people um, and they're not finding those people. So a lot of deputy district judges and recorders have come out and started doing a lot more days sitting. So thank you to them, obviously, but it's a real problem. And I don't, I, I really don't know what the answer is apart from rapidly retrain new judges, but that doesn't necessarily answer the immediate problem either. Yeah, there's a crisis in judicial recruitment at the moment. No one wants to be judges. And why would they, if you're a DDJ or a district judge with 
an insane list that you can't possibly get through in the days that you have in the time that you have why would you want to put that extra stress upon yourself usually for a pay cut you probably earn far more in private practice than you would being a full-time judge so there's no appeal to being a judge beyond the prestige of being a judge and quite frankly prestige isn't going to hack it for much longer it's something that i know hannah markham gc is the chair of women and family law feels very strongly about because we were in a committee meeting and she was asking all the juniors like me whether we were considering becoming judges further down the line in our careers and honestly the vast majority of us just said nah like we've got other things on our mind we've got things that we want to aspire towards but being a judge really isn't on the agenda so we've got a problem now in a couple of generations I imagine that's that problem is going to be even worse because people just don't want to be judges and that is a huge crisis because we already can't deal with the current workload so becoming a judge has to be far more attractive it needs to be far more manageable the workload to make it appealing to people to even become a judge to to learn those skills to train to apply also the application process anecdotally i've heard is an absolute nightmare who has the time to do the judicial application and there's also a very low number of women applying for judicial posts we see the drop-off in women's representation the more senior we become in the profession there's a huge number of women entering the law as students, as graduates, as tenants, and then they drop off a cliff once you get to silk judge level. Why is that? We need to be exploring it. Is that because of structural bias in the system that means that they're simply not getting recruited? Or is it because we're not making the job attractive enough for them? Is it because we're not giving them the facilities to be able to manage childcare and working as a judge as well? What, what is it? We need to bottom it out because it just can't carry on. So that's my, that's my plea this week, my campaign issue. What's yours, Maddie? Mine is actually, was also signposted by Marvka about something else on the sort of other end of the spectrum I wanted to talk about, which is a tweet from Blessing at the Bar, most of whom you'll know from Twitter, at B at the Bar. And it says, thread, hidden costs at the bar. Funded and unfunded mini pupillages. Many mini pupillages are unfunded or provide reimbursement of up to an average of 100 to 150 pounds. Students may travel to major cities, which also come with hotel travel costs. And then there's a thread that goes on to analyse the costs of things like staying in London for a mini pupillage, books for the bar course, the BCAT test, bar course providers. And we talked about this slightly last week in terms of the money that it costs to train as a barrister and, and how it can be a lot cheaper in the regions. But also, I think there's a, a point here that perhaps is sometimes missed that's most of the work experience that was previously pre-COVID required to become a barrister involved a lot of travel and a lot of coming to a city or coming to a place where chambers are and completing a piece of work in that city. And that involved travel as well. So often when I did mini privileges, you'd go to chambers in London, you'd then meet up with your barrister, get on a train and go to the court in Croydon or whatever, do your day at court, then come back to chambers and then have to go home after that. So that's about you know four different paid pieces of travel not to mention if you didn't have accommodation in London, you'd have to pay for that or travel very far and expensively to go home or to someone else that evening. So I think it's something to flag again for people who are at a student level who might be interested in becoming barristers. Thankfully, a lot of COVID <laughs> um, has meant that everything's moved to remote means and a lot of mini pupillages are now capable of being remote. And people who are still doing remote hearings if there is a problem with funding or traveling for work experience, you can always contact Chambers and ask if you could do a day of remote sitting if you can't afford to 
travel in and out of London. Obviously, the difficulty with that is you don't necessarily get the same experience as you would with spending the day with a barrister, which is the benefit of a mini pupillage. But I think chambers particularly need to consider the impact on students and those training to be barristers of not having the money to complete a mini pupillage and therefore offering significant reimbursement or asking for receipts and saying, if this costs you any money, just tell us and we'll pay you back. Do you think it's that much for a chambers to budget for because it's never going to be that much? But it would go a huge way to diversity and inclusion at the bar because a lot of people simply don't apply because they know they don't have the money to complete things. So one for chambers to flag and one for students to flag as well. Yeah, another thing that was a hidden cost that I really didn't think about was the cost of travelling to pupillage interviews. I was applying to primarily London sets, a couple in Leeds, um, well, up north, and I had to travel from Leicester, sometimes on relatively short notice. I'd be told the day before you got a second round interview, you've got to be in London. The cost of a train ticket from Leicester to London with one day's notice is not cheap. And I think I requested for one chambers at least to consider the costs, but by and large, no one really offered, no one flagged up, well, if you've got travel expenses that need to be covered, let us know. And who's gonna raise that because you're already in a precarious position and you desperately want to get a pupillage with them. You don't want to ruffle any feathers by going, well, by the way, can you have a look at my travel expenses as well, please? Routinely, we should be offering people their travel expenses, their reasonable travel expenses, because the cost of getting to the bar is an absolute joke. And I'm extremely privileged and I had financial support from my parents during that entire period. So if I was struggling to cover things like train costs, they would be able to help me out. But the vast majority of people don't have that privilege. So yeah, something for Chambers to keep in mind. It's also another reason why so many graduates are more attracted to the solicitor's profession than they are to the bar. Because we're self-employed, because we don't have HR departments that well, so many of us are self-employed and we don't have HR departments to think about things like that, then I can remember when I was doing vacation schemes at big city firms who would give me huge chunks of money to do vacation schemes with them and who would cover things like travel costs, would think about meals and who would be paying for them. It made the whole thing seem like some sort of luxury vacation in contrast to having to pay to go to Brentford County Court off your own back and take three buses to be able to get there so it's definitely something that would also make the bar more appealing. Yeah absolutely and I think to be fair I think the inns have come a long way in um, factoring in these costs when I was applying for scholarships many 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 years ago they had lots of different scholarships for different expenses so they had an entrance scholarship for the BCAT they had obviously the major scholarships for the BPTC they had post BPTC pre-pupillage grants for things like pupillage interviews and the summer between the BPTC and starting pupillage you could get some money for that or travel grants if you wanted to go in do an internship abroad or something like that so the inns are definitely the first port of call for people who are struggling with money but I think chambers as a whole there should certainly be some sort of unifying policy about it should not whilst you don't necessarily need to make money you certainly should break even when you're doing pupillage interviews or mini pupillages there's no excuse to make 18, 19, 20 year olds pay for that experience. And there's certainly, every barrister that I've met has said, I would never let them pay for their own lunch. I would always buy them lunch. There's no reason why that can't extend to actually helping them pay for the real costs of doing that, uh, which is not a sandwich, it's really the, the train and the, the travel. So something to consider. So there we are, episode nine, done. Yeah, I told Maddie that we have to record extra fast so that I can actually go on holiday today. So I think we've had a record-breaking short episode rather than the hour and a half rants that we usually land on. But thank you so much for joining us this week. Next time is our season one 
finale episode. So we'll try and think of something exciting for that so that we can end the season on a bang. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to season one of this podcast. We've had such an amazing response that we never, ever, ever imagined that we would get. We didn't think anyone would listen to us. And our stats have been so encouraging and so reassuring and has made us want to keep coming back every fortnight, despite the sleep deprivation and the late minute briefs to actually prep and record these episodes. Yeah, it has been overwhelming. We're so grateful to everyone who's listened and to any feedback that you have. We really appreciate it. We really are interested in knowing what you guys like, what you don't like, what cases you want to hear, what cases you don't want to hear. I know you want me to shut up about sex abuse. I will eventually start doing that. So it's really helpful for you to tell us in any format what you think and how we can improve because the aim is that we take stock after season one, have a think, see what worked, what didn't work, and then hopefully season two will be even more tailored to what you're looking for. So do keep letting us know what you think. But otherwise, thank you so much, and we'll see you in a fortnight. Bye. Bye.